Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. If you're applying to medical school in 2022 to start medical school in 2023, join me Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, or Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern at premedworkshop.com. Go register today. I'm gonna show you how to tell your story in your application. Again, that's premedworkshop.com. If you are applying to medical school in 2022, be there or be square. The Premed Year, session number 440. Hello, and welcome to The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Thank you so much for joining me on The Pre-Med Years today. Thank you for taking the time out of your day while you're washing your dishes, walking your dog, walking your cat, walking your iguana. Do you walk anything else? <laughs> Shoot me a message on Instagram or, or Twitter. Let me know what else, what other animals are you walking out there while you're listening to the pre-med years. This week, I wanted to play an episode that played on the MCAT podcast a few episodes ago because I thought it was an interesting discussion. If you haven't been listening to the MCAT podcast or you're not there yet for your MCAT prep, what I've been doing the last several months is bringing on different instructors from Blueprint MCAT's live online course. And we've been breaking down Blueprint MCAT full-length one. And we're rotating instructors every few weeks to bring them on, hear their take on how to do well in the MCAT, see what students are doing from their perspective to do well or, or do poorly on the MCAT. And the instructor that I've had on recently, Alex, is an interesting student because he was born in the States, I believe, but grew up mostly in the UK and or some variation of that. And he went to college in the UK and he took the MCAT without really taking any sort of the normal prereqs that a student would take here in the U.S. And it's a really interesting discussion on an international student, even though he's an American citizen, a U.S. citizen, uh, an international student prepping for and taking the MCAT and thought processes in terms of school selection, because a lot of medical schools still want you to have U.S. courses, prereqs done. And he talks about his exploration and research behind that and what schools potentially would accept his 
degree and, and classes from overseas and much more. So I, I wanted to play this episode here on the pre-med years, even though it was originally recorded for the MCAT podcast. So stay tuned to listen to Alex. Before we jump in again, Alex is from Blueprint MCAT, and he's part of the crew that is is a live instructor for the live online course. And if you haven't checked that out, I highly recommend you do. If you're looking for some accountability in your MCAT prep, you're someone who you know that just signing up for a course or reading books isn't going to cut it. You need some accountability to show up week in and week out and help you integrate the information that you're learning into how to successfully take the MCAT. Go check out the Blueprint MCAT Live Online course over at blueprintmcat.com. Let's go and jump in. Say hello to Alex. Alex, welcome to the MCAT podcast. How are you doing, my friend? I am doing great. How are you? I am wonderful. So right off the bat, the first thing people are going to hear is like, wait a minute. That is not an American accent. Only Americans take the MCAT, right? How dare you? I am <laughs> born and raised in Boise, Idaho. <laughs> Uh, what's going on? Where's where's that fun accent from? Yeah, so uh, I am English. My parents are English. Uh, I immigrated to the US uh, from the UK when I was uh, ooh, eight or nine years old. And uh, yeah, so I went to middle school in the US in in New Jersey. I usually I usually wait until kind of the second or third meeting to tell people that. <laughs> Sorry, people from New Jersey. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I went to, um, I, went, I did my undergraduate and graduate degree in the UK, but I kind of decided fairly early on in college that actually, you know, I wanted to be a doctor in the US. Yeah. So it kind of hence started my MCAT journey, which was, I think, you know, unconventional, but you know, a lot of fun. And I think is, you know, kind of in line with that has equipped me really well to teach all of this, these concepts to people because, you know, I had to teach them all to myself. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about that. Cause it's, it's not often that I get to talk to someone who is an MCAT expert who mm -hmm. went to college abroad, who lived in another country from another country. And, and obviously you spent some time here as well. The the mm -hmm. educational system in the UK in terms of, of undergraduate, graduate work, how does that prepare a student for the MCAT or does it not? And you have to go and do all of your own work outside of that. Yeah. So I think if the, the best way to put it is if the American education system is, you know, like a and kind of like a vast and shallow sea, <laughs> uh, you can imagine. You can you can imagine the British educational system as being, you know, like an ocean trench, where uh, it's incredibly. So you know, obviously, th we don't have majors in the UK. So you you kind of go into a degree program, which I guess is the closest equivalent to a major. So uh, in terms of how it prepares you for the MCAT, uh, I think that was that was kind of best summed up by my. Uh, initial diagnostic test when I first started studying for the MCAT, whereas I, I got like a, you know, like a 121 on chem phys, like whatever, a 124, 125 on cars, a 132 on bio, biochem, <laughs> and then like a 121 on psych -soch. 
Uh, yeah. And that was a very natural reflection of the fact that I had been doing all of this, you know, like experimental design in bio biochem, you know, quite intensely for several years. But my education had basically never touched any other any other aspect, you know, no physics, no chem, no orgo, no psych, no soch. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was incredibly narrow and targeted, but kind of lacked the breadth that the MCAT really requires. Yeah. So your training in undergrad would potentially be very similar to a non-traditional student here in the States who majored in finance and is like, I don't understand any of these core sciences. I, this is this is not something that I understand or learned in school. And so uh, the, even though you're, you're from a completely different educational system, it's very similar to that here in the States. And so we have lots of non-treads who listen to the podcast. How did you take those first steps into going, well, I didn't learn this in, in university, right? That you, you call it uni- university, uh, but I need to learn it, period. Where, where did you start with that journey to understanding the knowledge? Yeah, so it was, I mean, it was quite the journey because I think, as ever, someone if you know if you come from an international background, and I'm sure exactly the same thing happens for you know, oh, I've you know I majored in finance and then I've worked for an investment bank for three years. Um, there's always this step, kind of almost before you address any of the content, which is like what the MCAT even is. Yeah. And actually, it was your podcast that really helped me with that, which is not just these are the concepts you need to learn. But there's always that moment where it's like, and the MCAT isn't like a normal test. Like whatever is in your mind when you think of a test, the MCAT is like an order of magnitude, more work and is harder than that. Yeah. Yeah. So you've come full circle. You have to appreciate the scale before you start digging into the material (laughs) itself. Yes. So you've come full circle from podcast listener to now being a co-host on the MCAT podcast. Oh, exactly. You know, it's it, this has a has a has a particular poetry to it that I like very much. <laughs> I love it. So the the first steps, obviously, listening to the podcast is great, but that doesn't teach you the core foundational sciences that you need for someone who is in the UK. How do you take postback classes to understand that, or did you come to the states and be like, okay, now I need to do this? So I actually um, I taught myself almost all of the material i did take post to post back classes but it was it was later Hmm. um so i had taken some ap classes in high school which had been really helpful i took ap chemistry which you know provided if not the um the like the enough depth of content for the mcat certainly like some background of like what is molarity what is a chemical equation and then yeah and then i I just, it just took me a very long time. You know, I got, I ended up, I got review books from, you know, from test prep companies. I would review the concepts by by myself. And, you know, I think it's very similar to, you know, perhaps someone who's trying to take the MCAT before they've taken, you know, before they've taken orgo or before they've taken, you know, chemistry, where just loading that much information into your brain before you even address any of the kind of MCAT specific strategy just takes a long time. Wow. And um, so probably yeah. not a three month study plan. No, it <laughs> certainly was not. Um, I reckon it took an entire summer, which I thought would be fine. I'm, I guess I'm lucky in the sense that I'm 
very good at, uh, I, I'm someone who learns very well at just kind of sitting by myself and reading. <laughs> like I'm, I'm someone who's very suited to like self learning. So that really helped. But yeah. So I reckon I, I devoted an entire summer to it, realized, you know, probably two thirds into the, into the prep process that it wasn't going to be enough that, you know, I was still too weak on those foundational concepts. I didn't know enough psych, so, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't know enough physics yet. Um, and then I ended up taking all of the kind of subsequent winter break as well, which in the UK is quite long. It's about six weeks to basically throw my entire life into the MCAT. Because uh, at that point, you know, I'd taken enough practice tests. I felt like I had a good handle on the, um, on the, test-taking strategy components of the MCAT and just had to, de- had to just devote myself to like, okay, you need to know theories of personality. Like it's just, they're nuggets of information. They have to go into your brain. Like this is what you're doing for the next six weeks. Yeah. Let's talk about some of those strategies. So obviously yeah. you were smart enough to understand the material, to teach it to yourself. And, and there are students out there who understand the material, have taught it to themselves, or who have taken classes and, and really understand the material, got great grades in school. But then it comes to the MCAT, and they don't have the strategies to do well on the MCAT. What are the biggest strategies you think students are missing when it comes to the MCAT? Yeah. And I think it's so interesting because I think this particular concept often gets so tied up in people's kind of internal conceptions of their intelligence. Or actually, I feel like it's actually a, it's actually really a very different skill. You know, I, I often say to students who come to me and they're like, you know, I got great grades. I got an A in biology or, you know, particularly if they're a couple of years out of college, they're like, I have a biology degree. Like, why am I, you know, why am I not breaking the 50th percentile on bio biochem? And it's, yeah, it's because it's like, because it's the MCAT relies on a different set of skills um, that, you know, I think are related to, but ultimately separate from intelligence. You know, many people, I think, approach their undergrad learning experience, kind of holding concepts in their brain and then kind of, for lack of a better word, regurgitating it on the exams. You know, they have the, the mental equivalent of a stack of index cards that all have information on them and ultimately the MCAT is a content test but it's not enormously interested in your ability to just kind of quote concepts yep you know I remember on my on my MCAT exam uh, or I believe it's one of the phalanx one of the questions is um, one of the questions I saw was uh, in a world where the uh, quantum number for spin could hold three instead of two discrete values how many elements would would the second row of the periodic table be able to hold? And I loved that question, but it gets to the absolute core of that concept, which is if you just have the little, you know, the little pyramid memorized, like, ah, like what's the electron configuration rules, you won't be able to answer that question. You have to understand the underlying concepts that those numbers refer to and how they would change if you manipulated them. That's a very different skill, but it's still one that you can improve with practice. Yeah, it's so important. I, I think too many students try to just brute strength their way through the MCAT and and cram as much information in their head as possible. And then they go, okay, I got it all, all right, which is what you do for your final exams in college, but you can't do on the MCAT. Yeah. This is not the yeah. same. And then they go, what happened? 
So yeah. uh, obviously you did well in the MCAT. You are now a Blueprint MCAT live online instructor. And and for someone who's self-taught a lot of the material, that's amazing. And, and you're interacting with students now all the time who are struggling with the MCAT or, or maybe not struggling, but learning how to take the MCAT. For someone just starting out on this journey, what is the kind of the first steps in, in terms of recommendations that you have to say, okay, let's let's dip your toes in this MCAT world. Yeah, yeah, always. I, get, I always recommend that people kind of, you know, take a diagnostic test. You know, it doesn't matter like what your approximate level, it doesn't matter where you think you are. It doesn't matter. Like in a sense, every full length or every diagnostic that you take is taking a snapshot of your like instantaneous MCAT ability at this point in time. You know, and that's why I always feel like they're taking a diagnostic test feels like, you know, dipping that pH stick into the liquid and seeing what it shows you. So I'm really mixing the metaphors here. But, um, you know, because but it's it's useful because, an MK, you know, a taking a diagnostic test isn't just a measure of your like, how well do you like know the underlying content? It also leans on your strategy. So, um yeah, I or and you know, particularly with like the analytics that you know that Blueprint provides, they, they, it's so helpful because you can just instantly say to someone like, "Oh, you know, you're much stronger in bio biochem than you are in physics." Or what you see with a lot of non-traditional applicants is they're very strong in cars because they've spent all day reading, yeah. but they have like, but but they lack you know, but they lack background in the sciences, and that's just so incredibly actionable for how do I structure my studying going forward. Yeah. Oh, in terms of length of prep, that's always the the most common question I seem to get. How how long do I need to study for the MCAT? Obviously, for someone mm-hmm. like yourself who is trying to learn all the concepts and to learn MCAT strategy, potentially is different than someone just trying to learn the MCAT. Where do you think students mm-hmm. should start that process to figure out how long they should be studying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the really informative figures are the one published, are the ones published by the people who make the test, the ones published by the AAMC, which is, you know, they report average amount of study time by every student who takes the test, which is not to say that every student should be studying the average. Of course, that's definitionally not true. But um, it, it, I think it always provides like a really incredible like calibration point, particularly for people who are just coming to the MCAT like as a concept for the, for the first time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the AMC says that the average is about 290 hours for people who take the MCAT, you know, walking in on test day. But we, and we know, however, that, you know, the average MCAT score is about 500. And I'm sure as many people who are listening to this podcast know that actually, if you, you know, if you want to matriculate into medical school, the, you know, the average there is closer to 511 512 and certainly the number you, you know the number that you should be shooting for in order to be kind of broadly competitive under those statistics of course everyone is different is above 505 506 although you know there absolutely are exceptions yep um so i always think that's a really valuable number to keep in mind is like okay if i'm a perfectly average student i will probably need to put in more than this amount of time because I'm shooting for a better score than the average. Yeah, that's a good. Aside way to from that, it. after that, 
aside from that, you know, now we can start shifting this number in either direction. Do you have a really strong background in the sciences? It may be somewhat less. You know, were you like me and had almost no background in, you know, two of the science sections? Like, maybe it'll be somewhat longer. Yeah. Interesting. So about 290 hours on average that the AAMC quotes, that's, uh, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. And has been, I think, quite steadily rising over time. I'm, obviously, you couldn't draw any causal relationship, but the, yeah. you know, the average MCAT scores uh, for matriculated medical students has also been rising over time. Yeah. As yeah. I'm sure, you know, information circulates on what it really takes. Yeah, I blame the podcast for that. Everyone's listening to the podcast going, oh, the MCAT's really important. I need to study more. Um, I, yeah. I'm directly causing. No, uh, it's the same thing that we see <laughs> in medical school as well. The The average step one score, as we're recording this, step one is still a scored exam, but it's, it's moving past fail. Mm -hmm. When I was in school, the average step one score, I think, was like a, a 216 and mm -hmm. uh, now it's about a 230, which is a huge increase uh, on, wow. on the test. And so it's it comes from students understanding the importance of it, uh, information being readily available through blogs and podcasts and social media and students being exposed mm -hmm. to what it actually takes earlier. When I went to medical school, I didn't really understand the importance of a step one score and how that affected your ability to match into a future uh, specialty. And so I was kind of mm -hmm. ignorant to the whole process and uh, therefore didn't take it as serious. And now students are taking it ser more serious and there's, there are more resources available. There are lots of companies starting all the time around how to understand material better, how to learn the, the content better. And we see that with the MCAT as well with uh, both Blueprint's new live online course and, and their online course that came out last year and, and other companies popping up left and right again for MCAT material. And so it's it, it's getting serious out there. Oh, it's, yeah. And it's frustrating and, and stressful. What do you say to a student who's like, I, like, how do I keep up with this? And I'm not taking the test for another two years. The average then is going to be a 515 and this is going to be ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so, I mean, cause it is, it's so stressful. I think particularly for students who, you know, they come to this and they're like, I've wanted to, you know, I've wanted to be a doctor since I was six years old, you know, like, and, you know, so really like for, for so many people, like this is their dream career, you know, there is no plan B. Um, and, you know, it, they sometimes, you know, they get to the MCAT and it's like, oh my God, it's this inscalable wall that, you know, but, you know, that to them just is like stand, standing between them and like happiness in their profession. It's like, so a, it's, it's, it's like really a greased, stressful. It's a greased flagpole they have to climb. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think particularly because then, you know, they see so many of their friends somehow scaling it. Yeah. And they think like, oh, why can't I do that? Yeah. And, and that's really stressful and can really kind of weigh on your mental health. Yeah. Um, so I always, I always say to students, you know, in, the, in that situation, which is like, you know, it's a, I mean, it's a intractable cliche, but it really is a marathon, not a sprint. Mm -hmm. You know, so much of MCAT prep boils down to little decisions that you make every day over the span of months, rather than, you know, a Herculean effort on any individual day.
Yeah. You know? Yeah. The, the, there's a, a really good book in the business world called, um, mm-hmm. oh man, I, I'm forgetting it. The compound effect, I think. Yeah. The mm-hmm. compound effect where, where that's, that's exactly what it is. It's like, just try to be 1% better every day. Uh, and unfortunately, students don't understand how compounding interest works. And uh, maybe those finance uh, uh, pre-meds that we talked about earlier would know that, but... I mean, stu- student loans compound, so they should. <laughs> yeah. um, I-, I think too many students try to go from zero to 100 overnight. And and they take their yeah. first full length or they take a diagnostic and they get a 495 and they go... Oh crap! Like that's not good enough. I need a five twenty. That's what I'm shooting for. And they take their their first kind of real full length, and they get a five hundred, and they go, "Well, this is terrible. I'm not getting any better, any closer." I'm like, "Wait, you went from a four ninety five to a five hundred? That's a huge increase. Baby steps, yeah. baby steps. You got to get there." Oh, it's so yeah, frustrating. Exactly. And you know, I think people, you know, it's, it's just like you said, people overestimate what they can do in a day and underestimate what they can do in three months. Yeah, thousand percent. Yeah, I, I love that kind of quote. There's that's a very popular quote. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to you being kind of this pseudo international student. So, mm-hmm. spending time here in the states, being born. And going to university in the UK and then wanting to come to medical school in the States. Do you have dual citizenship or are you a resident here? How how does that work? Yeah. So I have, um, I actually, I actually have four passports. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So you're a spy. That's what you're saying. It is. It is. Well, I actually have looked and actually to apply to MI6, you have to renounce all of your non-British passports. I have, I have given it a non-trivial amount of consideration. Uh, and uh, yeah, so no, I was born in Cyprus and then okay. lived in many, many countries growing up. Okay. And uh, yeah, but settled in the US, you know, from the age of about nine. And yeah, and actually people do ask me that. They're like, well, what, you know, why do you want to be a doctor here? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you've spoken yourself to yourself about the, you know, the particular and I think reasonably unique challenges that face the American medical system. People say to me, like, why don't you just want to be a doctor in the UK? You know, the, their health system is in so many ways more equitable or more functional. Yep. You know, why not do it there? Um, and you know, I say to people, it's like, well, actually, you know, I've lived here since I was nine. You know, although it doesn't sound like it, like America is my home. It's where my family is, and it's where I really see myself being long term. And yeah. I think, you know, in a sense, although I think practicing as a physician in the U.S. does come with some discrete trade-offs, you know, ultimately, I think particularly for international students who are considering, you know, medical school in the U.S., you know, particularly if you're doing an undergraduate degree here, that actually, you know, if the U.S. is the place where you see yourself long term, you know, actually, I think specializing as a physician here is really good for the country because it is, you know, I think it's only through the actions of people that are here that it will improve. Yeah. Interesting. So the, the fact that you did your undergraduate work in, uh, at an international school, 
a lot of students, especially students who are U.S. citizens, who born and raised here, and they'll go, oh, I'm going to go have an adventure and go to the U.K., go to Australia, go somewhere else and do my undergrad work. They don't realize that that puts them at a disadvantage for applying to medical school because medical schools want coursework here in the U.S. And so I'm interested to know, because you said you did some post work after kind of studying for the MCAT. Was that specifically for this kind of 90-hour requirement that a lot of schools have? It was. Uh, so it's interesting. Um, you know, I decided to go to university in the UK. I assumed that it would be fine for <laughs> medical school. That is a probably not a decision I would make again. Interesting. You know, I, I, I should, you know, I should have listened to your podcast. Uh, yeah, it's it, it turned the the process of doing an international undergraduate degree, um, and then coming back to the US turned out to be vastly more work than I ever possibly imagined. Yeah, um, I you know I, I I had one exchange last year where there was a particular school that I was interested in, uh, and. Uh, but they had a at least one year of classes in the U.S. requirement, which on balance is the most seems to be the most common. There are a few medical schools which explicitly allow the U.K. Uh, in terms of coursework. Nice, um, I believe. You know, uh, Stanford and Yale, I think, are both in that category. Okay, um, but. Uh, there was one medical school that I really wanted to apply to, which had this one year of study in the US. And I sent the dean of the school a personal email saying, <laughs> I, I, know that, I know that I'm non-standard, like, but you know, I have two degrees, one from, you know, and my master's degree was from the same school that he did his master's <laughs> degree. You know, he came to the UK to do his master's degree. Yeah. Uh, so I sent him this email. I was like, and I hope, anyway, before going back to this medical school, and I said, you know, and I hope you weren't disadvantaged by the experience. Uh, <laughs> no, please, I prom, I prom, like, I promise, I know, you know, I promise, I took real classes. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, and it and it didn't work. Yeah. So yeah, I was, I was, I ended up, and that this is why, you know, I've I've put in so much work to do. Um, post class classes in the US, and which is now actually as of this coming summer, I will have fulfilled all of them. Yeah, very interesting. It is funny now, though, you know, taking chemistry, uh, you know, like now because of COVID remotely, and uh, you know, whatever, like, you know, whatever. You're you're in group you're in group classes, and people say, "Wow, you're really good at chemistry." I was like, "Yeah, weird." <laughs> Weird. <laughs> yeah. It's not like I have years and years and years under my belt, um, and and the MCAT work. So it, I I want to ask you specifically because both your MCAT expertise and now having done the work in the UK and done classes uh -huh. here, do you understand why schools do that, or do you think it's just a ridiculous kind of standard they have set? Uh, this walks, I think, a very delicate line <laughs> because um, I, I think they're under. I mean, and obviously, of course, I mean, I want to preface and say it's very hard for me to speculate as to their underlying reasons. I wouldn't yeah. be surprised if a lot of it is logistical limitations, where you know we know that your classes from the UK are almost certainly fine, but if we accept classes from the UK, we'll now be in this. Like we'll now be in this position where we have to, you know, what select two dozen countries in the world that we think are equivalent, 
and invite accusations of discrimination and also then have to teach or, you know, train our admissions officers into interpreting the, (laughs) you know, different and varying grading structures of all of these countries. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, I, I understand the, you know, for, to what increase their proportion of, apply, of applying students by five or 10%. Yeah. They, they have I think plenty I, I do, of applicants I do as it is. Yeah. On the other hand, um, I do hope that the policies change over the next few years. Um, what a couple of U.S. medical schools do, it's very uncommon. NYU is one of them. So I want to shout them out because I think they have a particularly forward-looking policy. Anyway, they awesome. say we don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and of course, of course, the the dean of admissions is has been on the podcast um, several times. And uh, yeah, and um, and what they do is they you know they've partnered with an external credential evaluating service, which which effectively does the work of looking at the foreign transcripts and saying this is or is not equivalent to a U.S. degree. And I really like that approach because I think it is, if only symbolically, a commitment to their what should be, I hope, most medical schools' underlying ideal, which is to accept bright, promising future physicians, kind of whatever their background may be. You know, why just because, you know, I was born, you know, because I was born in Afghanistan or I was born in Cyprus, should I be denied the opportunity to even apply to a promising medical school in the U.S.? Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, Alex, I'm excited to have you for the next several weeks here on the MCAT podcast and pick your brain as we go through these passages and discrete sets and all this fun stuff as we continue on with our breakdown of full length one from blueprint to MCAT. So I'm excited to have you. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on your journey to medical school and I'll see you in the next episode. Yeah. See you then. All right. So there you have it again. That was Alex from blueprint MCAT. One of the live online instructors. They're talking about his journey from being in the UK and taking courses there and taking the MCAT without much prep and still doing well and then researching schools and finding out who can apply to and et cetera, et cetera. So hopefully this was helpful for you if, if you are a student in a similar situation. Hopefully this has helped you. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on The Pre-Med Years. This is MedEd Media.